Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers and with the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference underway in Dubai, a lot of top-level conversations taking place about whether we're doing enough to tackle global warming and rightly so. The spotlight is really on China as the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitter. What it's doing, whether it's doing enough and how it's going to hit its 2030 climate targets. So that's what we're looking at in this episode, the big picture of what China is doing about climate change and how it might be more than you think. Just this year, China added more solar than the US installed capacity combined, and it is on track to adding 230 gigawatts of wind and solar combined. Yeah, so that fascinating conversation and whether you can trust the information China is giving us, that's in the second half of the episode. But first, let's get into today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, the 6th of December. Just when you think this situation couldn't get more dire, it does in Gaza. One of the world's leading humanitarian organisations says there is nowhere safe in Gaza right now. The International Rescue Committee says since the end of the temporary ceasefire, it's become almost impossible for any aid or humanitarian organisations to safely provide help. And it comes after an Israeli Defence Force commander says forces have engaged to, quote, in the most intense day of fighting since the start of their invasion of Gaza. These areas include targeting zones where Israel had told people to seek shelter. Now, that's according to residents and journalists on the ground. The World Health Organization also described the situation in Gaza as deteriorating by the hour. When you think about, you know, the number of women and children still sheltering or trying to seek shelter and, as you say, the the dire humanitarian um, situation there, this just makes my heart break, Antoinette. Oh, me too. And look, we have... um a UNICEF global spokesperson who's actually an Australian. His name is James Elder and I'm following him on Instagram. He posted this beautiful picture with all of these children yesterday saying children have nothing to do with politics and everything to do with war. So according to Gaza's health ministry, at least 15,899 Palestinians have been killed and 70% of that number of that casualty rate are women or those under the age of 18. Well, we've been following the High Court ruling that determined indefinite immigration detention was illegal earlier this month, and there's been another development. Now three of the 148 released detainees have since reoffended: one for alleged indecent assault, one for alleged cannabis possession, and the other for failing to meet daily reporting requirements to authorities. The opposition, unsurprisingly, is calling this a catastrophic failure and they want some heads to roll. They want Immigration Minister Andrew Giles and Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill to resign. And today, the federal government is expected to introduce amendments to laws brought in to deal with the fallout from the High Court decision. This has been a bit of a mess. It's been dominating headlines. But Antoinette, we were talking about this off air and you've got an excellent point to make. I have a lot of views about this and I can't help but notice that in the final two weeks of Question Time, this has been dominating kind of the fear-mongering and the Howard-esque 
a kind of fear of those in detention or those people from abroad has been dominating our politicians' time and energy and legislative will at a time when the rates of domestic violence continue to be at epidemic levels. Like in those two weeks, at least two Australian women have been killed at the hands of a current or former intimate partner. And if we're really concerned about safety, the biggest threat to our safety is not these, you know, boogeyman, scary detainees from overseas. It's people who are most likely to be living with. And I also want to put it in context. Yes, these three people have allegedly re-offended, but we have to also give the presumption of innocence until they they face their trials. But every year in Australia, we release around 50,000 prisoners and more than 50% of them re-offend and end up in jail again in the first two years. We have some of the highest rates of re-offending in the Western world. So it's not surprising. It's not new. It's not related to immigration policy that people with a criminal record may re-offend. And if we really are concerned about safety, we shouldn't be spending all of our time, all of our politicians' time calling for the resignation of our Home Affairs Minister and our Immigration Minister. I'd like to see the quick laws and calls for resignation next time a woman is killed at the hands of a partner. Brittany Higgins has told the federal court she volunteered to give evidence against her alleged rapist, Bruce Lerman, because she would, to quote, not let my rapist become a millionaire for being a rapist. On her final day in the witness box, in the defamation case brought by Lerman against Lisa Wilkinson and Channel 10, Higgins was asked why she posted on social media about defending any defamation cases six days after charges against Lemon were dropped due to fears about her mental health. Higgins also rejected a suggestion that her statement to the media outside of the courthouse after the criminal trial was designed to blow up a retrial. We also found out how much the Seven Network is paying for Lemon's rent each fortnight. It's $4,000. That figure was in exchange for him speaking exclusively with the network over a 12-month period. And Telstra has been ordered to pay $24 million in penalties and refunds for overcharging its customers. The Australian Communications and Media Authority says some 6,500 customers were wrongly billed an average of $2,600, so not small change between 2012 and this year. The chair, Nerida O'Loughlin, says this isn't the telco's first offence. This is the third time we've taken action against Telstra for billing issues in recent years. They really need to step up now for their customers and make sure they've sorted out their billing problems. So this was all due to uh, internet connections that were no longer active. Um, it's worth pointing out that this all came to light after an internal investigation. So Telstra mm. came forward and fessed up that they'd done this uh, and they said that they've since put in monthly checks to make sure that every month when they're issuing these bills from now on that they check whether the customers are using the ADSL services before they're billed. So hopefully this won't happen again. It, it mostly affected um, small businesses too. So I guess look back through your bills. If you think you've been unfairly charged, maybe you've got a, you know, a good case to prove. Look, ACMA certainly has had a busy year this year and I can't help but feel there are execs at Optus going, oh, phew, it's not us stuffing up again. Like we have the heat off us for just a moment. All right, Antoinette, great to have you in. We're going to jump into our briefing topic now, all about what China is doing about climate change and how to know if they're doing what they say they are. 
Now let's get into our briefing on what China is doing about climate change and how it might be more than you think. Yeah, it is the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitter, but it is also undertaking a renewable energy revolution in its deserts. And nearly 40% of all new vehicles sold in China this year were electric. Dr. Mihal Maidan is the head of China Energy Research at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Mihal, thank you for joining us on the briefing. So I guess post-COVID-19, there's been a lot of talk about China's recovery being a lot weaker and more gradual than I guess the world expected. What's been the impact of that on energy demand? It's been really interesting actually to see I guess, market perceptions and how reality has fared. I think there was, first of all, an expectation that we'd have a massive rebound. When government statements at the beginning of the year suggested that what they wanted to do was roll back restrictions and meet their around 5% GDP growth target with that. And that is roughly what's happening. But people were expecting a big stimulus. There is a crisis of confidence among consumers in China still, which has worried lots of people. But the macro front has probably not been as dismal as the press perhaps has painted it. Meanwhile, energy demand has been very strong. Oil demand has surged. um, Gas demand has grown quite strongly. Electricity demand has been roughly in line with GDP growth. But there has seemed to be this disconnect between the macro picture and the energy picture, which again, we may have overblown. And there's clearly a little bit of stockpiling that's happening for a lot of various commodities. But there are also new drivers of economic growth that we might not be seeing, and that's, again, obscuring the picture. There's been talk that China could reach peak oil this year. Has that occurred? Probably not. And when we talk about peak oil, we probably need to unpack it. Um, So gasoline demand is likely to peak in the next year or so. Diesel demand may have peaked, but demand for other products like jet fuel, which is the biggest driver of aviation, hasn't peaked yet. And perhaps the most significant is oil use for chemicals, which is unlikely to peak, probably not this decade even. China is currently the world's largest oil importer and is on track to becoming the biggest consumer of liquefied natural gas. And you've written a paper where you explore some of the different scenarios for China's future oil and gas consumption. How do you see that looking if, as you say, China is going to continue to be the world's largest consumer of oil and the second largest consumer of gas for possibly decades to come? The interesting thing when you look at the various scenarios is that China, as you just said, remains the biggest consumer, the biggest importer of oil for probably a decade. But the volume of consumption changes quite dramatically in different scenarios. So to the extent that we don't think that's the case, but if oil demand for all products peaks sooner rather than later, then the kind of drop in in consumption is pretty significant and those volumes change quite considerably. But the fact that nonetheless, it does remain a big consumer and a big importer of fossil fuels means that a lot of suppliers still have a lot of room to run with the Chinese market. And that we tend to look at it as a vulnerability because China still relies on a lot of exporters, Australia being a big exporter of both LNG and coal to China. But equally, there's a vulnerability for the exporters. So even though China needs those countries, the countries also need the Chinese market because it is likely to be one of the last big importers standing. 
What about the rapid take-up of electric vehicles? I saw a statistic that said that EVs make up about 37% of all new car sales in China, which is massive. What sort of an impact will that have on China's energy mix? I mean, that is really phenomenal. The uptake of electric vehicles in China has been quite staggering. So there are a number of aspects to this. First of all is what we first discussed as peak gasoline, which keep surprising. And I think even the Chinese companies kind of move forward their expectations of when gasoline demand will peak. So that's the one tranche of oil demand that is likely to peak sooner rather than later. The other question then is what it means for electricity demand. And for a long time, it seemed that China, which was electrifying its end uses, it's electrifying its economy and transport use, Then the question becomes, is it going to decarbonize as rapidly as it is electrifying? Or are we put simply going to have a system in which, even though we've moved away from oil for transport, we're relying more heavily on coal to fuel the electricity that is now fueling these cars? What can you share with us? I've been hearing a lot of interesting talk about some exciting renewable projects that are happening in China's deserts. What do we know about those? And How confident can we be that that what we're hearing about those projects isn't biased? I mean, the big Western and Northwestern provinces in China that have large land masses and and very good resource endowment in terms of the wind and the quality of the sun, of the solar energy, have long been sort of the big basis for China's renewable deployment. Um, The problem with them, even though there's, again, vast space and land, is that they're far from the big consumer areas. And so China's had to build big, long-distance grids, which has also been a form of sort of economic stimulus, actually. But that has had to be connected to the coastal provinces where consumption is. That drive continues uh, in large part also because a lot of these provinces want to generate that kind of growth and activity. Um, And I think we can be quite confident that those installations are happening. The question then is, can the grid keep up with the construction and therefore be able to move those resources to the big consumer hubs and what happens to pricing dynamics? We know a lot about those big hubs. We know that in the past there have been curtailment issue, which is what happens when you've got all that capacity, but you can't connect it to the grid. A lot of that has been resolved. But equally in the coastal provinces now, there are a lot of renewable resources that are being added like rooftop solar and offshore wind. So actually what's happening is that provinces are competing amongst each other to try and add as many renewables as possible in lots of different and rather innovative ways. Yeah, I was reading some quite hopeful analysis that said that um, the rollout of solar and wind is putting China on track to reach records this year that far exceed its already world-beating adoption of green energy and so much clean power is coming online that the country could even reach peak emissions well ahead of its 2030 deadline. Absolutely. I mean, just this year, China added more solar than the US installed capacity combined. And it is on track to adding 230 gigawatts of wind and solar combined. Now, China has made a pledge to have 1,200 gigawatts of wind and solar capacity combined by 2030. At current pace, it's likely to meet that by 2026, so four years ahead of target. 
The thing with China's pledge, however, is that it has made two sort of promises, two pledges at the United Nations. The first was to peak its carbon emissions before 2030. And therefore, with all this renewable rollout, it can reach that promise ahead of time. The other pledge is to be net zero, to be carbon neutral by 2060. The 2030 pledge is interesting and important, but the little wrinkle there is that China has not said at what level it will peak its emissions. So essentially, it can add a lot of coal now and a lot of emission-intensive industries, which it sort of is, then peak and start to work its way down. The fact that it has a lot of renewables does help it to reach that peak sooner and perhaps at a lower peak. But we are at the same time seeing quite a worrying trend, which is China adding also a lot of new coal capacity. So we've got these encouraging signs that China's energy mix is shifting towards renewables, but also, I guess, a less encouraging uh, sign that it's moving towards coal. Why is that? Is it because of the uptake of EVs? Actually, the increase in coal is very much an energy security and economic stimulus concern. The kind of return of coal has been visible since 2019, actually, and it sort of not a very recent thing. You can trace it back to the US-China trade disputes, where China became increasingly worried about the negative external environment and you know, supply chains and decoupling. And it wanted to ensure energy security. And because it does have a lot of coal, even though China imports a lot of coal from Australia as well, it is roughly 90% independent for coal. So it is available locally, it is relatively cheap. And so it wants to produce coal. And ever since 2019, as the world has seen COVID and supply chain problems, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and volatility in gas markets, this emphasis on coal has only increased, again, because it is domestically produced and available and offset some of the vulnerabilities of imports. Over the past year, as China has recovered from its post-COVID doldrums and a lot of provinces have wanted to ensure economic activity but also reliability, they've been approving more coal-fired power plants. What are some of the signs that we as observers can look out for that, that China is committed to being a good global citizen in regards to meeting its climate targets? And, and for people like you, how do you ensure that you're getting the best possible and, and most transparent information from a country that hasn't got a great track record on that front? Yes, in terms of reaching China's commitments, because the commitments are framed in a relatively vague way, it is still on track to meeting them. We do, however, want China to be more ambitious because it could be more ambitious, right? As we've just been discussing, there is such a massive potential for renewable deployment and also manufacturing and development that China could be more ambitious, could try to peak earlier and at a lower level. It could accelerate its electrification. Those are things that hopefully we will see in a year or two more ambitious pledges as we emerge from these sort of three years of a lot of uncertainty, both economic and international. Um, And there is maybe hope that the next five-year plan, which starts in 2025, will be more ambitious on that front. The data and the monitoring remains complicated. Um, China is publishing less data. And so we sort of have to try and monitor what is available. We have to try and triangulate that with what we know from people on the ground, with local data sources. Um, And we just have to try and do our best to understand where things are heading. 
That was Dr. Michal Maiden, the head of China Energy Research at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And a few of the renewable projects that were rushed into planning after President Xi's announcement are now being challenged by local land use and environmental authorities, including a development in Inner Mongolia that's been accused of damaging forests. It is worth pointing out, though, that some of the bigger ones, including one where solar panels have been built to a size that's being equated to about 20 central parks, are taking place in desert areas. Listener.